Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility that persuasion can overcome delusion in our polarized politics as engaged Democrats vote today alongside enraged Republicans. Joining us is Anand Girdadas, the author of the international bestsellers Winner Take All, The True American, and India Calling a former correspondent and columnist for the New York Times for more than a decade. He has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Time, and is the publisher of the newsletter The.Inc. And he's an on-air political analyst at MSC, and we'll discuss his latest book, Just Out, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Then we'll get an update on the COP27 climate talks underway at a resort in Egypt and speak with David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol, and the struggle to slow global warming. His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World, and he is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. Then finally, we'll get an analysis of the takeover of Russia by thugs and gangsters like Putin's cook Prigozhin, who just admitted the regime is, has, and will continue to interfere in American elections. We will also try to understand why Republicans want to help Putin as he and Prigozhin's mercenaries rape, plunder, and destroy neighboring Ukraine while threatening Europe. Joining us is Dr. Louise Shelley, the Omer L. and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair and a university professor at George Mason University, where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center that she founded. A leading expert on terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as transnational crime, her research has a particular focus on the former Soviet Union, and she also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering, and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism, and Dark Commerce, how a new illicit economy is threatening our future. And joining us now is Anand Girdadas, who is the author of the international bestseller Winners Take All, The True American, and India Calling, a former foreign correspondent and columnist for The New York Times for more than a decade. He's also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Time, and is the publisher of the newsletter The.Inc. And he is an on-air political analyst at MSNBC, and his latest book just out is The Persuaders, at the front lines for the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anand Girdadas. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your book starts out with a short prologue recounting how Russian troll farms tried to, to disrupt uh, the 2016 elections. And now we're literally getting it from the, the horse's mouth, if you will the head of the troll farm, Yevgeny Prigozhin, otherwise known as Putin's chef or Putin's cook, just admitted in response to a question about a Bloomberg report saying that Russia was currently interfering in the current U.S. midterm elections. He said, 
gentlemen, we interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere carefully, precisely, surgically, and the way we do it, the way we can. So pretty uh, extraordinary development, wouldn't you say, Anand? Yeah, I, I start the Persuaders book with uh, with this account of the Russian troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, uh, because I we had all heard the narratives, as I'm sure you had, Ian, about what the Russians were up to in the run up to the 2016 election and then since. And, you know, the conventional story was they were trying to make Donald Trump president or that they were trying to, you know, make us all angry with each other or inflame division. And that, you know, th there was a lot of truth in those narratives, but I was kind of unsatisfied with what I was hearing secondhand and thought, you know, as I'm going to look at these tweets and social media posts myself as a kind of text, the way I read any other text as a as a writer uh, doing this work. And as I sat down to read the Russian troll farm output as a kind of text, uh, following in particular two you know, highly successful trolls, a left troll and a right-leaning troll uh, from the 2016 contest and slightly beforehand, I really came to a deeper understanding of what they were trying to do. It, it seemed to me they weren't just trying to get Donald Trump elected because they were also boosting Black Lives Matter content and anti-immigrant content and pro-immigrant content and all kinds of content. Uh, they were trying to gin up uh, the emotions of kind of contempt and dismissal in American life. They were trying to make us believe that persuasion, which I believe is at the heart of what makes democracy work, changing people's minds in order to change things. They were trying to encourage the view that persuasion is impossible. And I think that's a that's a view that has unfortunately metastasized through our body politic. And more and more of us participate now in that view that persuasion is, persuasion is impossible. It's not worth trying. People, you know, we just have to mobilize our own side and organize to resist the other side. Uh, and I wrote for the persuaders to push back against that fatalism about other people. And I wrote about a bunch of organizers and activists and cognitive scientists and occult deprogrammer and others who show that it's still very much possible to change minds in a divided and polarized and inflamed time, uh, but often by changing, changing our ways and doing, going about uh, the defense of democracy very differently than, than we currently are. Well, of course, we'll learn about that in the next few days, how successful these persuaders have been. But many people are arguing now that the Republican Party itself has become a, a party of trolls, that they would rather fight culture wars than have plans and policies. And if that is the case, how could they possibly win? in elections, uh, which they appear to be uh, about to do? Well, I, the Republican Party is, uh, I wouldn't say a, a troll party so much as it is a increasingly a white nationalist party that is running on the promise of clinging, helping people cling to, you know, uh, the false glories of a selectively remembered past. I mean, they, they want to, you know, make America white again, make America, you know, kind of madmen again. Um, when you could kind of be a, a country that operated largely for the benefit of white men and everybody else was a kind of guest. And they're assisted in that effort by the structures of the American constitutional system, which, you know, the Electoral College and the Senate and, and you know, the way gerrymandering works and these other things, which, which give a, you know, diminishing American minority 
um, the opportunity to to exert majority power. And, you know, so that's uh, that's what their project is. And the, the at the heart of the persuaders book, as you saw, is to is to suggest that pro-democracy, pro-freedom forces in this country, uh, the Democratic Party and its, you know, allied uh, groups need to buck up and get their act together if they're going to outwit and outcompete and outmaneuver uh, this kind of uprising of American fascism. A lot of the business as usual messaging, business as usual policies, business as usual uh, ways of courting voters, just not going to work, not adequate to the challenge they now face to save this republic from fascism. And uh, and I believe a new set of ways are needed. And the Persuaders book is about, you know, about those new ways and 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 how to how to use them. A new, a new kind of organizer's playbook, I would say, uh, for for saving this republic and and getting us all the, the future of nice things that we deserve. Well, your book could not be more necessary and needed at this moment. But just before I get further into talking about the persuaders, you mentioned that white nationalism is at the core of the new Republican Party, which is clearly led by Donald Trump. And very soon, within weeks, he's probably going to announce that he's running for president again. And if indeed the Republicans do as well as the pundits suggest they might do in these midterm elections, then Trump will surely take credit for it and run with it. But isn't there also another explanation, perhaps? I often think that we're sort of drifting towards a kind of fact-free idiocracy in this country. Is there an education divide? Could you make the case that the people that vote Democrat tend to be more educated? And I recall on the stump in 2016, Donald Trump famously said, I love the poorly educated. I mean, look, I, I think there's a more complicated answer to this in a simple one. I mean, first of all, it's true that education polarization is a big problem. And, you know, my facile answer would be uh, if it's the case that educating people makes them more predisposed to believe in reality and believe in, you know, uh, the evidence on climate change and and the evidence that an economy that works for all is better for all, uh, then we should probably be educating more people. You know, uh, we should probably be making it easier to go to college and not you know, have a, a kind of uh, ball and chain of debt following people, because it seems that education correlates with people having a kind of larger heart for people who are unlike them and a greater willingness to have institutions that fight for people they don't know. Uh, so uh, another reason to, to educate more people. That said, I also believe that the Democratic Party should not rest on the laurels of being highly popular among college educated people. That's a huge problem, actually. And it should work to be way more appealing to people without a college degree and people of all kinds, because in fact, its policies are particularly helpful if this era has not been great for you economically. And I think that has failed to translate into support. And, you know, I don't think you can blame voters for not being attracted to you any more than you can blame, you know, potential mates in the dating pool for not being attracted to you. You can blame the opposition for trying to brainwash a huge number of Americans, that policies that help the 1%, in fact, help many. And, you know, I, I certainly would hold Republican Party officials and Rupert Murdoch and others accountable for that. But I don't think you can hold regular voters accountable uh, for not persuading them 
I, I, I think at the end of the day, it is a question for why is the Democratic Party unable to speak convincingly to people who would clearly benefit materially from its program? And I think here there is a basic problem that the party has become more and more cerebral and wonky and bullet point prone and, you know, speaking in a language of block grants and reconciliation and so on and so forth, and not really a party that connects with people on the level of emotion and psychology the way, frankly, the Republicans do. And I don't think those forces of emotion and psychology and kind of a user-centered politics can only be used by bad by bad guys. I think those those that, that kind of skill can be harnessed for good. I would love to see a Democratic Party that knows how to meet people in that more reptile brain, emotional, psychological terrain and use those kinds of appeals to sell an agenda that would make people's lives better. It's not enough to, to kind of just introduce Build Back Better or Medicare for All and, and hope that people get to it. You have to organize people into an understanding of the world where, as the writer Tony Cade Bambara said, you know, the artist's job is to make the revolution irresistible. You have to organize people into an understanding of what you want to do that is that is irresistible, not just righteous, not just evidence-based, but irresistible. And I don't think, frankly, the Democratic Party or its allies have made the cause irresistible. I think they've made it right. I think they've made it factual. I think they've made it, you know, uh, eyes eyes uh, dotted and T's crossed and triple fact-checked. I don't think they've made the cause irresistible. And would you agree then, Anand uh, Gerdadis, that the Biden administration has done well governing, given the very thin majority they have, but they've done very poorly in messaging? I think that's right. I think Joe Biden, and I, I want to say that very clearly, I didn't expect Joe Biden to be a significant achiever in the presidency, and I was wrong about that. I think Joe Biden, particularly if you followed his prior career, this is someone really in the moderate end of a lot of debates in the Democratic Party over the last generation. This is someone who you know, who frankly uh, had a view of that was more associated with the corporate uh, and, and moderate centrist wing of the party. And I think Joe Biden has turned out to grind out a bunch of victories that are kind of remarkable, you know, with in particular for big, you know, programs on infrastructure, uh, pandemic relief, climate and uh, advanced manufacturing that are, you know, put him up there in the in the leagues of really big Presidents who who got a lot done, um, and he's had to do it in an environment that is awful. I mean, a, a pandemic, uh, you know, the inflationary environment that that has come out of, in a way, trying to do some of the right things on on helping get the economy back when it was wiped out, and you know, then a war in Ukraine and and everything else that has really you know added the most of the fuel to this thing, and so you know, it's a tough spot. Uh, but he has had a significant role in grinding out these improbable victories. That said, I think he is someone for whom, as is the case for, I would say, virtually every major Democrat in power I can think of right now, for whom storytelling and kind of narrating the country through what you're doing is just not a forte, you know? Um, and, you know... Not everyone's Barack Obama. Not everyone has that power. And, and it's not just a moderate thing. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders, in many ways, who I also write about in the book, has some of the same limitations, you know, really appealing 
to the head, talking in a language of policy, just not quite able to take it to a, that kind of place of evocative storytelling. And I think one of the things that's going to be crucial um, coming out of the midterms leading, leading to 2024 is for the leaders of the Democratic Party to really step up their game as storytellers. And, you know, this is not just like turning on a messaging switch, Ian. It's a, it's a hard thing. You know, they, they say writing is thinking. I mean, you, you, it, you, if you can't write a good message, it, it may not just be because you haven't taken 10 minutes to go write the good message. It may be that you haven't fully thought through what your movement is offering America. What, what, why are you in these fights that you're in? What is the, you know, wh where does Build Back Better or infrastructure fit into a vision of the country that you're trying to sell? Writing is thinking. And I think actually what the Democratic Party needs is a real, real set of, a project of thinking about what it is trying to do in this era. And then that needs to flow into a messaging renaissance that is everything from digital era fireside chats, a kind of reinvention of the fireside chat. It, you know, we need a whole new speech writing program from the ground up. I can't remember a speech given by a major Democrat in the last several years that I will quote to my children 20 years from now. And I would challenge anyone listening to this to tell me a line that they can quote from a major democratic speech in recent years. Uh, you know, the, you, you can't defeat fascism flying a four engine plane on one engine. And we're, we're going to need to have every single engine roaring if we're going to beat this menace. Well, I'm glad that you use the F word, Anon, because it's so obvious that if these election deniers that the Republicans are running, if even a fraction of them get elected, they'll move the Republican Party, Trump's Republican Party will move forward on their, you know, their role model, of course, is Hungary's authoritarian leader, Orban. And you will have essentially they'll capture the electoral machinery. So in 2024, Democratic votes simply won't matter. So there's so much at stake. And again, your book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds and Democracy is so important for this moment. You mentioned a little while back about the need for the Democratic Party to be less wonkish and, and more appealing to the working class. I guess in many ways that candidate John Fetterman fits that bill. But I think more to the point, Tim Ryan in Ohio does, whether he'll win or not is another thing. They Actually, the Democratic Party didn't really give him any funds or much help. But he's an interesting character, not only because he talks in a way that working people relate to. He's also, in many ways, a spiritual character who's written books about yoga. So he seems to cross the divide, does he not? I think um, Tim Ryan, you know, who is, is a remarkable candidate. I, I think he, you know, I mean, I, I, he and I don't have necessarily the same uh, policy views within the arguments of the Democratic Party, but I, there, there's there are a few people who I think have so effectively channeled some of the new playbook that I write about in The Persuaders. I mean, the willingness to kind of pick fights, uh, not always feeling the need to go high when they go low, but being willing to, to, to you know, hit people, hit people hard when they're going low. Um, the ability to, you know, clearly focus on um, the fraudulence and extremism on the other side. 
have a sense of fun while doing it. I don't know if he's going to win or not, but I think he's run a hell of a campaign. And and and, and there's a kind of uh, ability that he has to channel some of these values of the Democratic Party in a way that reads as just American common sense. And I think that's actually, whether you are a progressive or a moderate, I think that's something more of us need to get good at, fighting for things that are progressive, that are, you know, uh, that are good for all Americans, and doing so in ways that do not read as academic or or leftist or wonky or activisty, but just mainstream common sense, you know? And I think that's some of the art of political communication is to is to take really important ambitious demands and also frame them as just what people do, what who who we are. Uh, the right is very good at turning very extreme demands that would hurt most people into something that people feel like is just who they are. And I think the left needs to buck up and get better at turning things that would actually help people into things that most people can identify with. Well, just in closing, you mentioned the word fight. And it does seem to me that there is a lack of fight in some of the candidates, particularly in some of the key races in Wisconsin. Mandela Barnes doesn't seem to have much fight in him. Katie Hobbs in Arizona, likewise. Is there still a tendency amongst progressives that they'd rather be righteous than effective? Yeah, I, I think the the you know the the righteousness problem is is real, and there's a problem of I think kind of declaring the world you want and then being impatient about people's inability to conform to that world right now, right? And I think we need to, you know, I think, uh, you know, writers have used phrases like pragmatic utopianism in the past, and there's many different formulations of this, but be able to say, we have really big, ambitious visions for the world, and we're a merciful movement in terms of, we understand that to get to a racially egalitarian society, it's gonna be hard for people, you know? We're asking people to let go of a lot of ways in which they've seen themselves identified themselves as we dismantle white supremacy and its structures in this country. We're, as we get past patriarchy and toxic masculinity, a lot of men have to be different to not be drags on women and not exist in a way that makes women un, unable to live their dreams. And we want these changes, those of us on the pro-freedom, pro-democracy side. We want these things to happen, but sometimes we get to a place where we're so impatient about change that we don't understand that it's hard for people to change who they are. It's hard for these structures to change. It's hard for people to see themselves in movements asking them to, to make themselves new. And on climate, on on uh, building a democracy that works for us all, on reinventing an economy that serves us all. These are all things that are going to require us to live differently, relate to each other differently, and be different. And I think we need more patience uh, rather than righteousness and be able to build a movement that is self-confident enough that people who don't know the right terms, don't know the pronoun thing, don't know the right race terms, maybe don't you know, not familiar with some of the elements of our history, don't feel alienated from the movement, but feel like the movement is an edifying space they can come into to learn more and grow more and that there be space among the woke for the still waking. Well, Anand Gerdadas, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anand Giridas, who is the author of the international bestseller, Winner Take All, The True American and India Calling, a former foreign correspondent and columnist for The New York Times for more than a decade. He's also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic and Time, and is the publisher of the newsletter, The.Inc. He is an on-air political analyst for MSNBC, and his latest book just out is The Persuaders, At the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds and Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the COP27 climate talks underway at a resort in Egypt. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols and The Struggle to Slow Global Warming. His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World. And he is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Victor. Well, Ian, it's really great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And so far at the COP27 conference in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, small and, and some endangered nations have been taking to the podium and pointing out record profits of oil companies, etc. And also there's a move on the part of the UN to address greenwashing by corporations and cities and banks, etc., uh, and particularly oil companies. So Biden is going to be there on Friday. I guess the rich nations have yet to talk, but they've been getting an earful so far. In fact, the head of uh, Barbados, Prime Minister, basically described the situation between the rich and the poor nations as almost going back to the colonial age. Yeah, I don't know if it's the colonial age, but this is this is a dispute that's been brewing for a long time. And the previous big climate conference a year ago in Glasgow, Scotland, ended kind of just barely with agreement. The developing countries left pretty unhappy that they had not been getting the kind of money that they expected from the rich industrialized countries. And that was already festering. And then you see things like these record profits from hydrocarbon companies. And so that's this has kind of been guaranteed that these these disputes would be on full display. I think what's what's interesting here is is what's the route the route forward? The developing countries have a very clear message. The industrialized countries that haven't yet spoken yet, 
and aren't going to take on the developing countries kind of head on. But nonetheless, they've got all kinds of other priorities. You know, there's looming recession. You've got a land war in Europe and on and on and on. It's not really an auspicious time for big new agreements on transferring more money from industrialized to developing countries. And yet the developing countries are already feeling the effects of climate change, which mostly they didn't cause, and they're understandably upset about it. Well, in terms of the global landscape, the president of um, Ukraine, Zelensky, basically made a speech saying that you're never going to deal with climate change unless you deal with peace. Yeah, and, and, and that's right. And you're never going to deal with climate change unless you deal with the migration problems that are linked to to you know, people being pushed out of their homelands because of the extreme impacts of climate change. And you're never going to deal with climate change without fundamentally dealing with a whole bunch of issues about economic development. And so climate change is one of those topics that, that links to everything else. And on the one hand, that makes it a kind of granddaddy of a topic and one where you can imagine solving lots of problems. On the other hand, it also brings out lots of disagreements. And I think when there's when there's low levels of trust in the international system, which has been true for a long time, those disagreements just kind of fester. And I think it it's one of the reasons why these really big global conferences, like what's going on in Egypt right now on, on climate change, these big global conferences either end in gridlock or they end with kind of pablum agreements where people kind of agree to disagree, but they nonetheless walk away feeling like they agreed, and then not a lot, hap- not a lot happens. So is there any focus, though, in terms of this sort of blame game, if you will, on some of the big players in, in hydrocarbons? And in fact, you, you know, Russia, ever since this war, the price of oil has gone up, and the aggressor in, the, in this case, in the war in Ukraine, is, is profiting. And they've made a deal, OPEC Plus, with Saudi Arabia to cut production, which is going to impact this midterm. At least uh, that was the fear on the part of the Democrats and Biden, who are furious with it. So is anybody sort of pointing the finger? If you, It's one thing to point a finger at the oil companies who are making record profits, but what about Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, both of whom are, are the biggest producers of uh, oil yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of finger pointing of that type going on, but it's a whole lot easier to point fingers at big Western oil companies and to blame them. And some of this is just the normal theatrics of a global conference like this. I think to me, what's interesting is that inside all of that noise, you're starting to see some more practical deals. This article that you mentioned at the top that's in Foreign Affairs last Friday from a big team of us, a bunch of people from all around the world who've been thinking about these issues for a long time. One of the arguments we make in that article is that you're going to make progress not with big global agreements, like what would be the outcome of the Egyptian conference on, on climate change, but instead by small groups of highly motivated countries and, and firms that are going off and doing things. And a good example of that is just last week, the United States and the United Arab Emirates, kind of centered on Abu Dhabi, made a, a inked an agreement to spend about $100 billion on clean energy over the course of the next few decades. Um, and when you look closely at, at the Abu Dhabi part of this or the Emirates part of this, it's really interesting. You know, that's a big oil producing country. But at the same time, they're building one of the largest nuclear reactors in the world, brand new nuclear reactor just coming online right now, uh, just west of Abu Dhabi on the Saudi border. So that's you know six or seven gigawatts, huge amount of clean energy. They're building a lot of solar. And so what you're seeing is a lot of kind of clutching and gearing going on in these big oil, even in the oil producing countries where they're trying to figure out how do you make a lot of money right now, which is doing a good, good job at that. But then also, how do you invest in the future? And I think the the some countries are doing that. I think the Russians are pretty much hopeless. And the Russians, for the most part, have 
I think voted themselves off the off the global island for quite a long time. And I don't see a lot of attention to Russia in the climate change conference. They're just completely uncooperative. They're constantly in the way. And people are mostly trying to navigate around them. So your article at Foreign Affairs, a new way to fight climate change, small scale cooperation can succeed where global diplomacy has failed. The picture is a picture of a vast solar array in, in the Emirates. Is that what where it is? Yeah, and and, uh, and and indeed one of the largest, I think to this date, still the largest in the world, but there's so many going up that that, that, that honor is constantly moving around the world. One of the largest solar arrays in the world is in fact in, uh, in the Emirates. And it's a sunny place. Um, they've got a good grid um, and they, to, you know, up to a point can connect a whole lot of solar. And it's in their interest to do that, partly because they're trying to reduce the consumption of natural gas and oil for making electricity, which lowers emissions, but also allows them to sell more in the global market. But it also allows them to help you know, play a role in bringing down the cost of solar. And the same has been true for their nuclear plant. And so I think I think that's the larger story here. And it, it's these kinds of practical deals, real investments on the ground that kind of change facts create new interest groups, make it possible for countries to move faster around climate change because it seems like it becomes less expensive. And you have big, bigger political supporters inside these countries that want to push that ahead. And that's true even in a big oil producing country uh, like the Emirates. But given that Russia has weaponized oil and gas and that a part of Putin's strategy is to both make Americans feel the pain at the pump and already the Republicans are hitting that they may cut aid to Ukraine, but the Europeans, of course, are going to have a cold winter along with the Ukrainians, and Germany is a, is a very key player there. So solar arrays don't necessarily work that well in Germany. What kind of initiatives are there in terms of wind? Is that is that an alternative? Because as ugly and hideous as this war in Ukraine is, the silver lining might be a, a forced, you know, going cold turkey on oil and gas out of necessity. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, your your question's pointing exactly to to where, in fact, European policy is headed, and frankly, American policy is headed as well. And I think I find it useful to separate the short term from the long term. The short term, over the next few years, the Europeans are going to find anything that they can that burns, and they can't go cold turkey on oil and gas, especially on natural gas. They're going to bring in more gas from the United States in the form of liquefied natural gas (LNG). Um, that's become very expensive. That market's very tight right now. A lot of that LNG is actually destined for Asian markets, and so it's being redirected into Europe, and it's driving up the global price. And so they're scrambling to get everything they can for the next few years. But at the same time, they've doubled down on their their strategy for, you mentioned wind is, is part of it, wind for, for making electricity, hydrogen over the long term, so switching away from conventional natural gas to hydrogen. And you put it all together, and my take is that the the Clean, so-called clean energy transition has probably actually been accelerated because of the war in Ukraine, because it's created political commitments to reduce the dependence on Russia. It's also, frankly, driven up prices. And when the prices of fossil fuels are really high, it makes it easier for some of the alternatives to come in because, frankly, they look less expensive. And what about the talk about greenwashing from at the Glasgow COP? UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres appointed 17 experts to review the integrity of these non-state net zero commitments and Canada's former environmental minister said at a news conference launching this new report from the UN that too many of these net zero pledges are little more than empty slogans and hype. Bogus net zero claims drive up the cost that ultimately everyone will pay. How much of a problem is uh, greenwashing? 
I think it's a pretty big problem. You know, you've got a whole bunch of companies, especially brand conscious companies that are out there saying when they want to do something and they, they don't know what to say. And so they say, well, we'll have net zero emissions by 2050 or 2030 or some kind of goal like that. And then the CEO comes back from making the announcements, turns to his or her staff and says, OK, what do we do next? And the answer is they don't know. And I think the good news in that is it's a signal of effort. The bad news in that is that you've got a lot of companies now that are focusing on how to make the numbers add up without actually being able to reduce emissions yet. They haven't figured out what options work and not. A lot of them are buying these offset credits. Most of those credits are, are bogus. And so it's basically fraud. And so I think that's what we've got going on is you've got a whole bunch of companies that are committed. Nobody really knows what to do. And so it's easy to make announcements and hard to really change things. And I guess I'd say one more thing about that, which is the place where it's been really interesting to watch is in finance. One of the most prominent announcements in Glasgow a year ago was about this alliance of, of financiers representing, depending on how you count, $130 trillion of capital that was ready to go green, according to their backers. And that alliance has basically come unglued because when you look closely at you know what's a green investment, are you willing to make an investment without a without a, an additional economic return? Those are the kinds of real questions that adults in finance need to answer, and they hadn't really been answered. And so I think folks got, you know, to use the metaphor, they got out over their ski tips and making bold claims without really knowing how to put them into practice. And that's where we are right now. So is there a way then for, I mean, obviously, reparations, that's a word that John Kerry, who's leading the U.S. delegation, uh, wanted to avoid. And of course, it's a politically dead on arrival here in, in another context in terms of race relations in the United States. So what is the way forward in order to, as we started out mentioning how most of those who've been at the podium so far at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, Egypt, have been the poorer nation. Some of them are literally going under these small Pacific islands because of the rising sea levels. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Prime Minister Barbados has, has compared the divide between the rich and poor nations as a, as a form of new colonialism. So what are the answers? I mean, isn't that really what you, your your article, Foreign Affairs, is about a lot? But uh, who's going to run with the ball? Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly what the article is about. And I guess I'd say three things. Um, first is there'll be a lot of talk about reparations and big numbers will be discussed and, and none of that's going to happen. I think that's politically dead on arrival. Um, the, a smaller set of numbers and a very important uh, uh, set of funding commitments, about $100 billion per year, a lot of it going into helping to build capacity in developing countries. The Western world has not delivered on that. They delivered in part, but not fully. That's a much more realistic discussion, in part because it, those kinds of funds can go help build capacity in developing countries, make it possible to do a lot more and leverage additional additional capital. The second thing is it really is important to, I think, keep the right yardsticks. We're actually making a huge amount of progress. 15 years ago, the world was on track for five or six degrees of warming. Now we're on track to maybe two and a half or three degrees of warming. That's still a lot of warming, but it's not five or six degrees. And so the yardsticks that have been used, stopping warming at one and a half to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, of the numbers that are written into the Paris Agreement, those yardsticks were never achievable. And so there's kind of a built-in pessimism into this process. But when you take a step back, we're actually making a lot of progress. And that leads to the third thing I'll say, which is really what we talk about in this article on foreign affairs, which is 
the really big progress is being made by these small groups of highly motivated governments and firms that are out building new industries. They're building new steel industries. They're building new electric power industries, figuring out how to limit, how to reduce emissions. It takes a long time, and they're starting to bend the curve, and, and the speed is different in every different sector. And, and I think that's I'm very concerned that the Egypt, Egyptian meetings are going to end in a kind of political gridlock and everyone's going to have pessimism at the overall process. And yet when you take a step back, it's these small groups that are out really changing facts on the ground and making it easier to transform these industries that will be the ultimate real engines of progress here. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, David Victor, I mean, obviously, you mentioned that nuclear is making a comeback, and I, I, I imagine the Germans are sort of sorry that they shut down their nuclear plants as a result of Fukushima. They're trying to revive some of them. But coal, of course, is also coming back, you know, maybe in the short term, but still, aren't coal plants one of the most identifiable stationary sources of CO2 emissions in the, on the planet? And I just noticed the other day Joe Biden said something about replacing coal with clean energy and Senator Joe Manchin just had a hissy fit over it. So where are we in terms of dealing with that problem, which would logically be a low hanging fruit? Yeah. And a huge amount of the overall progress is going to be measured by how quickly we move from um, conventional coal plants, especially inefficient conventional coal plants to much cleaner alternatives, natural gas, and eventually uh, nuclear renewables and, and other zero emission sources. And there might be a role for fossil fuels in that. Advanced natural gas plants that capture their pollution before it's emitted in the atmosphere. There's a lot of work going on on that. So I think that's still a, a work in progress, but but the, the it is low-hanging fruit. I do think governments have learned something over the last year, which is they know they need to move beyond coal, but they also need to be careful how quickly they do it lest you have a repeat of this kind of experience that we've had with with uh, um, the natural gas markets in, in Europe. And that's why we see the Germans extending the lifetime of their coal-fired power plants a little bit, because they need to keep the lights on, and they, if the prices get out of control and energy is not seen as reliable, then there's going to be a political backlash. And so I think we're moving the system about as quickly as we can. The, uh, an interesting place to watch here is South Africa. There's a big deal announced in last year in Glasgow that includes mainly uh, debt finance, but also some grants to help shut down and switch away from coal in South Africa. South Africa is a very coal rich and, and coal intensive country. And in, as that deal is probably be reworked a little bit, a little more role, a little bigger role for grants, as that deal is reworked and is turned into reality, that'll be a good indicator of how quickly the Western world can help accelerate this shift away from conventional coal. And I take it Australia is in the same boat too, right? That means. Uh, they export an awful lot of coal. Absolutely. You know, Australian politics uh, are wrapped around the axle of the coal industry in Australia. And the country, frankly, like the United States, swings uh, left and right when it comes to climate change policy. And a big chunk of that is because there's a big vested interest in continuing the coal-dominated economy. I don't see how, over the long term, that kind of economy is sustained. Well, David Victor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, it's always a great pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you, David. And again, I've been speaking with David Victor, who's a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 
and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming. His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World, and he's the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. We're going to take a brief station break and we come back with an analysis of the takeover of Russia by thugs and gangsters like Putin's cook, Prigozhin, who just admitted the regime is, has, and will continue to interfere in American elections. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Dr. Louise Shelley, the Omar L. and Nancy Hurst Endowed Chair, and a university professor at George Mason University, where she directs the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center that she founded. She's a leading expert on the relationship among terrorism, organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime and terrorism, with a particular focus on the former Soviet Union. She also specializes in illicit financial flows and money laundering and is the author of Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime and Terrorism and Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Louise Shelley. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And in a way, Evgeny Prigozhin, otherwise known as Putin's cook, kind of fits the profile of the people that you've been studying um, for some time now, Dr. Shelley. And he's a, he's a member of the Siloviki. He's close to Putin. Uh, he runs the Wagner Group, uh, the mercenary army that's fighting in Ukraine. And he's also does the procurement for the, the Russian military, where he takes a huge cut and, and basically gives the troops substandard food and etc. The most outrageous example of all was that he bought cheap Chinese tires for Russian military vehicles, and that's one of the reasons why they broke down on the, on the road to Kiev in the initial week of the, uh, the war. But he also ran this troll factory in St. Petersburg that hacked into Hillary Clinton's campaign emails, which then were then passed on to WikiLeaks. So it's amazing, though, that yesterday, Monday, he went public and, and ad- admitted, he said, we interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere in the American election. So what do you make of that, um, Dr. Schilling? Well, last night I was teaching cybercrime to my professional students. And, of course, I talked about this because much of what is done by cyber criminals is done on behalf of states. And Prigozhin and his 
misinformation, disinformation campaigns are a perfect illustration of this. And what I like that you said about him is that he fits into every part of what we study and do at track. So we keep the the terrorism database for the statistical annex of the annual State Department's report on terrorism. And we've got the Wagner Group that Prigozhin runs um, and provides him a lot of money that is active in promoting and engaging in terrorist incidents in Africa. We see him in illicit financial flows. We see him in corruption with procurement, as you just talked about. And we see him in cybercrime. So he fits in he fits into every part of what we study and analyze. Well, he's also the face of Putin's Russia, isn't he? I mean, that's the sad thing is that this country with such talented people and such great artistic heritage of people like Chekhov, etc. I mean, it's amazing that this criminal element is now the face of modern Russia. And Putin, of course, has created a kleptocracy and he regulates the oligarchs and the Siloviki, the so-called men of force. And Prigozhin is very much among them, if not chief among them. But he's almost at war with the Russian regular military. He's he's making arguments through his friends in the state-run propaganda press that he's fighting the war better than the regular military. So what do you make of that particular clash? I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And part of the argument that Prigozhin is making is that Russians are not are not equipped to fight this war. But part of the reason that they're not equipped to fight this war is that there has been so much corruption in the military, so much um, siphoning off of the resources needed to buy equipment, boots for the military, to to feed the troops, equipment to train the troops, things for the people to take when they get called up, that, that the military is not functioning as everybody imagined, because nobody thought enough about the issue of corruption. And and Prigozhin, unfortunately, is, in a, is not only have these problems of corruption, as you talked about with the tires and the Chinese, but he is also going into prisons. And there have been wonderful videos leaked of him recruiting prisoners who will be put on the front lines and die, but they're told that if they serve for six months on the front lines, they'll be free. But he gets money out of this. He gets money out of providing human cannon fodder. And for somebody who's, you know, traveled to to Russia for the last 50 years of my life, it's very sad to see this situation because it's not just you know, Chekhov, it's not just over a century ago. Russia has had a great culture for a very long time. And many of the most artistic, innovative people have fled rather than be be part of this military machine. And one of my my fears is that if if Putin do- doesn't survive this, 
We may have somebody like a Prigozhin, who's even more brutal, come in to replace him. And so the, the future is perilous in many respects. And to have a person with, with such a hold and such an ability to manipulate and serve Putin and provide all the dirty tricks that he needs to find the, the cannon fodder he needs to put on the front lines without caring what happens to them is a very sad future for Russia, let alone the enormous consequences for Ukraine and the enormous consequences for the United States and Western Europe for this formidable misinformation um, campaign company that he he runs on behalf of the state and profiting from the state for doing this. Well, what I find really disturbing, Dr. Shelley, is that on state media, the propagandists, the prominent ones like the talking head on their 60 Minutes, they're absolutely over the moon about the possibility of a Republican victory in today's elections. They're really counting on it. Uh, because of what Kevin McCarthy has said in terms of wanting to revisit uh, funding Ukraine and not wanting to give them a blank check and other members of the Republican Party even more outspoken about cutting off funds. So they seem to be counting on that. So what's wrong with our country in a sense that why don't we recognize that this is a moment uh, where it's necessary for Putin to be defeated because the consequences of him, of him winning mean permanent destabilization of Europe. And I just don't understand how the Republican Party doesn't care about that or appears not to care about it. What's your take on that? I, I am as mystified as you are. I don't know how the values of our democratic society and the Ukrainians who have, are fighting so bravely for the principles of democracy are not being supported and why we would be in any way favoring a cutback of assistance to Ukraine in favor of Russia, which is more authoritarian than it's been in my lifetime and, or I should say in my adult lifetime, and has is so, I would say, hell-bent on undermining our democracy, our rule of law, and our principles. And I think it's very, very important that we understand that Russia has and maintains a very malicious and dangerous approach to our country. And I am somebody who believes and works um, with people of all different, and teaches students of all different political persuasions. And I believe that we are richer as a country for having uh, differences in political views. And the Russians were trying to use our differences against us, I find just hideous and, and threatening to the vitality and the democracy of our society. But given Prigozhin's admission that we interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere, the interference, particularly in 2016, was to help elect Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. And I imagine that is still their priority, which is to help Trump in his comeback. 
And what I find particularly disturbing is the alliance that Putin seems to have with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia with through OPEC Plus, where they're the two main players, where they're basically forcing up the price of gas at the pump, presumably to help in come back for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is so close to Mohammed bin Salman, he's making so much money out of his relationship. That feels to me like almost at the level of treason, that that he's making billions at the same time this is impacting the average American at the pump. We're all getting fleeced while he is enriching himself. Does that trouble you? Yes, and what we're talking about are what I think of and how the issues that we study attract are non-traditional security threats. So the corruption that you're talking about that allows individuals to enrich themselves enormously at the cost of the American taxpayer, the the, the in, international illicit movement of money, the cybercrime that is directed at undermining the principles and the core of our society are all extremely concerning. And the fact that they are being used to, to support Trump and not support the principles of democracy in our country is extremely serious and threatening. But we need to think beyond our sort of blinders where we think only in terms of military terms. Our society is being threatened through non-traditional ways, corruption, cyber, misinformation, and these can sway people and have an enormously corrosive impact on our society. And therefore, it's not just being threatened with arms. There are other very pernicious ways of undermining our country and, and interfering in our politics. Well, Dr. Louise Shelley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The headline.